we now need to say, well, what is it that church and community mobilization can do in emergencies? And so I went to see a community uh, in San Pedro Sula. Um, and um, when they saw the floodwaters rising, they supported immediately people to, to relocate them, especially if they're most vulnerable. But they used their church uh, volunteers. The pastor had been coordinating that leadership, how he mobilized his young people and his leadership and his insight uh, and his passion for his community uh, meant that, you know, their recovery was really quite remarkable and fast. Welcome to Conversations, a Tear Fund in Northern Ireland podcast that connects you, our Northern Irish listener, to the work of Tear Fund around the world and its partnership with the Global Church. It's a real privilege to host the podcast. My name is Chris Thompson. I'm part of the team here in Tear Fund in Northern Ireland. And you, our listener, are so much appreciated. We're recording this just at the end of October. And so we've come through a couple of weeks of political crisis here in the UK. And we're about to enter, uh, I sense, a a crisis here in our politics in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, And so we set that in the context of our conversation today, which focuses on global crises. My guest this podcast episode is Inuni Chadburn, my colleague from Tearfund. She is Head of Humanitarian and Resilience Work uh, across Tearfund globally. Inuni is married with two sons. Uh, she lives in London. Inuni has worked for Tearfund for nearly 20 years uh, and 10 years in her most recent role. She spent time living in Sri Lanka uh, and she's previously been company director for Tear Fund in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, she's married with two sons. Her husband, she tells me, is half Haitian and half Sri Lankan. And so they live in London, but spend a lot of time uh, with family in different parts of the world. Uh, and it's it's wonderful to have Inuni with us. Inone, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Uh, before we get stuck in, just tell us where you're calling from and what the weather's like where you are. Uh, I'm calling from London and just looking out the window. It's actually really warm here at the moment. I'm afraid probably another consequence of climate change, oh. but uh, maybe we'll get into that during the course of the conversation. <laughs> uh, we were just talking before we started that um, you've got this um, global family and your husband's half Haitian and half Sri Lankan. Yeah. Um, and, and living in London is like a halfway house between those um, places. And I just said, well, in Northern Ireland, halfway between two families is maybe a 10 minute drive or a half hour <laughs> drive. So you're truly a global guest and uh, it's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Um, Inone, let's start with Pakistan because that's been on our on our hearts and minds and we've been praying for it in the last number of weeks. It's disappeared off our news probably in the last couple of weeks, overshadowed by other stuff, but it's a major humanitarian crisis for the people in Pakistan. Uh, A couple of quick stats, 2 million homes destroyed or badly damaged, 900 clinics uh, or hospitals damaged, and millions of acres of crops lost. Um, A couple of weeks in, can you give us a wee bit of an update about what the situation is like in Pakistan now? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I just first and foremost, just want a huge thanks to those churches and supporters across Northern Ireland who've actually 
sacrificially given. I know it's not an easy time and cost of living is affecting all of us. So it, it is really important to acknowledge that right right at the beginning. Um, for our team in, uh, in Pakistan, uh, they have been working relentlessly um, to really support uh, places, especially in Sindh is where we're focusing on at the moment. Um, but we know even up until... Uh, I can't give you live update as of today, but certainly in the last 10 days, we know that there was still stagnant water. Um, you know, it's taking it's taking weeks and weeks and weeks for all of these flood waters to drain away. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is a growing cases of, of waterborne uh, diseases uh, and uh, over 7 million children uh, and women require immediate access to nutrition. So in other words, to, you know, if you're a lactating mother or uh, obviously young children who are who are still in the, the growing fast um uh -huh. there's, there's at least 5.5 million who have no access to safe drinking water either so these are really big concerns uh going and and at this moment in time we're building up to the winter the winter in pakistan can be very cruel and harsh um and uh you know, we, we've wiped out a harvest um, that you haven't been able to harvest. And there is a, a small window now to plant. Um, so that is a very urgent need for uh, for us as an organization. But, you know, farmers, they have to go and uh, go into the fields and inspect the silt. You know, what what quality of the, of the residue of the floodwaters? Sometimes it can be very fertile silt that's left and, and it, it could be leading to um to some, some high quality kind of like crops for next year but sometimes it you know what you've lost it, it's just too waterlogged it's too drenched uh it, it really needs a whole six months before it's going to drain away properly so you know farmers uh, and creating what we call food security is a really important uh really important commitment for tier fund at the moment mm -hmm. and that only adds into the global sense of food insecurity and rising prices which will maybe come to later on before we move a little bit more global uh just to, before we leave pakistan how can we be praying just in the next few weeks for the situation there in particular yeah no really good so for tier fund um we're really wanting to make sure that we get a lot of our projects uh and our uh, partners well established uh um and get a lot of the early phase of our response uh, completed before the winter begins to set in. What we need to pray for is making sure that they're everything in from the logistics through to the staffing, through to the permissions from the government, through to the coordination with other aid agencies, all comes together really effectively. Uh, and those are the, the hidden things that are behind the scenes. You think immediately of, of people just handing out goods or working alongside people to give things. The, the coordination behind the scenes is just as important. And to make sure that we're in alignment with the government and making sure that we, we, we're we there to be uh, a, a positive contributor alongside a lot of other organisations, including the local community organisations, including uh, those partners who are there for the long term you know, who are the civil society there, just like uh, the food banks that we see at churches set up in, in the UK. You know, they're the people that we need to reinforce. And it's the equivalent of that in Pakistan that we need to come alongside to make sure that they're equipped to be able to serve their communities as best they can. So yes, pray for pray for coordination, pray for good logistics, pray for the well-being of our staff who are um, 
you know, quite exhausted now. It is always at this stage of response that people begin to run low on energy. Um, they've got the adrenaline of this immediate situation that they go to, but it's it's draining work. So lift up our partners and the staff who are working on there as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Inoni. That's helpful. I think sometimes when things are so big and far away, we long to pray, but we don't always feel well equipped to pray. And so information that you've shared will help fuel our prayers. And that's really, really helpful. And do keep an eye on kind of like uh, One Voice uh, and other tier fund sources, because they will give you updates of, of latest information uh, to, to give clear and articulate prayers. Because I know, yeah, information is really helpful for focused praying and insightful praying and wise praying. So, yeah. Great. So, Leaving Pakistan now for a minute and thinking slightly more globally, your role as head of humanitarian and resilience within Tier Fund, I guess that means you're overseeing or supporting our humanitarian emergency response work right across the world. So give us a bit of a global picture outside of Pakistan. Where are you and our teams focused right now in our humanitarian work? Oh, gosh, (laughs) that's a really big question. So, uh, yeah, I have many places on my heart at the moment. I, I won't, I won't, uh, uh, I won't beat around the bush. I, I think um, it is a difficult time. I've done this job for this particular job for for over ten years now, and and the the depth and um, the difficulty of some of the situations that we see um, really does concern me. So first and foremost, that is top of my heart is East Africa. Mm-hmm. and the famine that we're seeing in northern Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, and Somalia. And I don't use the word famine lightly, um, but the reality of a, a food crisis, uh, a cost of living crisis, um, and uh, climate change uh, compounding with uh, you know, the Ukraine uh, conflict, um, we, are, we are seeing uh, a supply chain of, of funding just dry up. Um, just at the time we are coming into our fifth drought, our fifth season of failed rains in this in these parts of the world. And uh, you know, there is direct attribution to climate change. People can make can make that association now. You know, scientists are bold enough to make those statements. And you know, climate change isn't a notion, it's here. Um, and we've been focusing so much on the mitigation. Um, sadly, we need to do a twin track approach now. We still need to look at reducing our carbon emissions. We still need to lobby for COP27 that is coming up. We still need to hold governments to account to an international commitment to to reduce uh, carbon emissions. Um, But at the same time, we must step in and say these people's lands are becoming untenable for living. What, what, what are the options that we have? How do we help them adapt? What, how do we work alongside them? Otherwise, you will see uh, continued famines beginning to evolve. And when you move away from East Africa, you then go over to places like um, uh, Bangladesh and and maybe places like uh, Honduras, Nicaragua and Guatemala and and the Philippines. And these are all places that have increasing impacts from hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones. uh, And these are places that were vulnerable in the first place. Um, And you then realise just how much the difficulty is of, of making sure that with with Governments who are uh, in a difficult place, um, either because of their own political instability or uh, they have 
political biases and uh, that don't include everyone or they are there is direct conflict. These locations suffer then from real difficulties in getting coordination effectively on the ground to allow a safe space for local churches, local partners, local community groups to be able to then also respond to these crises and work effectively to uh, to reduce the impact or the effect of this crisis. We know from our work it is um, uh, a multifaceted approach. We, we, emergencies aren't just about one age agency landing into a place, seeing what their needs are, giving out food and then leaving again. That, that That's a very dated notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now really want to look at a real holistic approach to the way that we address emergencies. Uh, And we look at things from the perspective of what we call disaster risk management. And that's where we go into places where we know communities are vulnerable. And what are they vulnerable because? They're vulnerable because of poverty. They're vulnerable sometimes because of injustice. They're vulnerable because uh, things like climate change has actually changed the circumstances. And, um, you know, there's there's a, a lot more impact from floods, as we see in Pakistan, or typhoons, as we see in the Philippines, or, or droughts, as we see in the Horn of Africa. And we look at their vulnerability and say, we need to work differently. And we're going to be with you from... For, for a long time, we're going to sit with you. We're going to help you work through what is it you can do to change? What is it you can do to support yourself? What is it you can do to actually move into uh, a, a way of life that is becomes long-term sustainable and that adapts to your new futures? Um, but it is all part of our our work that we come alongside. And my role within that, to, to go back full circle on the question, is that um, we have some extraordinary partners and we work with some extraordinary communities and tier fund country offices and our amazing country directors strategically look at how we can wisely use the the funding that tier fund has Um, and then my role is to accompany them to come alongside them to give them insight as to the learnings from other places connect them globally support them with other uh, access to other funding opportunities and to really dig deep on what it is that we we can do better wow that was a real tour de force that's wonderful and what struck me is that the layers of of challenge so you've got places that maybe have been in conflict and you're adding into that climate changes um around the land and you're adding into that maybe displacement from other places and the impact that has and you're adding into political instability and the cost of living any one of those things would be a crisis absolutely uh, and and maybe here in the uk we're experiencing just one of those in terms of a real push on our living standards but we're not experiencing many of the other ones and so it's hard to imagine just the layers upon layers upon layers of that makes those crises really, really, I yeah. guess, long term and and hard to mitigate against. Yeah, one of the things that we're really trying to understand more in a very sophisticated way now is to look at what we call compounding crises. So that layer upon layer upon layer, and how is it that we can really address all of those compounding shocks and stresses in a simultaneous way, um, whether that be conflict, um, whether that be like environmental degradation, uh, whether that be drying up of land because of climate change. Um, you know, all of those things have to be holistically addressed. When you're sitting in a community that um, uh, has these compounding shocks and stresses, 
you don't look at them in that compartmentalized way. We mm-hmm. we may do that analysis in a compartmentalized way, but what it's like it's everyday vulnerability, it's everyday risk. You know, it's we don't realize just how much we've protected ourselves against everyday risk and the things that we do. Mm. So, you know, when we step into our car, we put our seatbelt on because we're protecting ourselves against the, the impact of a potential car crash. We have insurances on our homes. We have child protection policies in our schools. We've built up these management of risks and they're so subliminal in our society. And I don't think we see them like that because we just see it as part of our everyday life. And those people are affected as well. Those compounding risks are, I wake up in the morning, I need to know what food I'm going to eat, how my child is going to be educated, how my my brother who is long-term disabled is going to get supported, how am I going to be making a, a livelihood? And all of the things that have infected them, what the, there may be an injustice issue as to why my brother is, is disabled, but there may be an access issue as to whether I can't get go to school because the the floodwaters have come in. I might not be able to do my livelihood because of an economic shock. So that's all the live reality of, uh-huh. of the individual in their circumstances. And we have to look at it in a whole. If you go in and address one thing, it doesn't mean that that life is fully lifted from poverty. It's not fully transformed. And, you know, that that's our passion and our heart to make sure we, we work for the transformed community. Amazing. I love that. I love how emergencies fit into Tier Fund's vision for long-term transformed communities. And it's not a side thing. It's part of that long-term vision of seeing communities lift themselves out of poverty, but that's the context that that, that is in. Um, only just a question around the the actual response. I know we, we can imagine food, practical food aid, uh, shelter, support, uh, winter clothing and blankets and different things, depending on the location. I know in some of our projects, we give cash grants to people who find themselves in contexts of of emergencies, and that might might surprise people or it might not be what people expect. When is it right to give a cash grant to somebody? And what is the thinking behind that? What's the benefit to the local community of that? So it might surprise you to hear that um, uh, our approach is one that says, uh, why not cash? So um, one of the things that we feel very strongly uh, about cash-based programming is um, around dignity, uh, dignity and respect. Um, We have presumed uh, that communities are not capable of making wise uh, decisions for themselves about how they're used. But let me go back to that person that I've described for you, that that person who's got a, a brother who's, who's disabled, a child that goes to school and, and, uh, and you know, doesn't know where their livelihood is, is going to go. You you go in and give them a food basket, uh, literally kind of like six to eight weeks worth of uh uh, of um, uh, non-disposable items to help them through a crisis, um, that hasn't addressed the need of how do I get my my child replacement school shoes so that they can actually go to the school, or how is it that I'm going to replace the support that I had for my for my brother because you know he he's lost access to his his walker or or, or whatever uh, that he needs to to support him in his disability. Um, you know, the, we we need to allow people to make their own choices and to self-determine what is the biggest priority for them as a family. What is one priority for one family is definitely not another priority for another. Um, and the other thing is um, we we know that if you give a cash infusion into a community, um, it actually boosts the local economy. 
And it actually kickstarts opportunity for re-establishing livelihoods um, uh, and, and opportunities to re-establish lost uh, assets. So, you know, that person I, I speak about may actually go and then say, actually, I know the most important thing is for me is to start my livelihood again, because then I can pay for the school fees for my child. So it's a, it's a really effective tool. Um, and I think we do know from literally decades worth of evidence now, it, it, it's, it's been a real shift in approach over the last 10 years uh, within humanitarian response to actually use cash. But we know that in actual fact, from that evidence, uh, especially women make wise choices uh, and are, are good at actually making effective decisions as to how uh, to use to use their money. I'm just remembering last month in O'Neill, we had a conversation with uh, a food bank organization here in Northern Ireland around the theology of of food support internationally and locally. And the dignity of the individual was something that came out pretty strongly in that conversation and the challenge of doing that well here. And I think maybe there's a challenge or learning around what you said for church leaders here who engaged in something like a feedback or a practical response on the doorstep. That's been really helpful. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break. We're going to fly around the world in two minutes and check out some things that you might have missed. Each episode will take a short break from the conversation and take a spin around the world in two minutes. I'm Lauren and I'm the Advocacy and Campaigns Manager for Tear Fund in Northern Ireland. So, around the world in two We'll start in Nigeria, which is facing the worst flooding in over a decade, which has caused over 600 deaths and 1.3 million displacements from homes. The climate crisis has contributed to the extreme flooding, the effects of which have been worsened by poor infrastructure and the release of excess water in a dam in Cameroon. But amidst the struggle against the impacts of climate change, there are inspiring stories of hope. One of Tear Fund's partners in Nigeria, the Joss Green Centre, is leading a youth movement for change through creation care, waste management and peace building. And a recent project set up a community livelihood centre, which is used for peace building and reconciliation work, and was constructed using 5,000 plastic bottles. We'll now turn to Punta del Este in Uruguay, which at the end of November will be the location of the first round of international negotiations on a new UN treaty to tackle plastic pollution. Currently, 2 billion people in low and middle income countries don't have access to solid waste collection and have little option but to burn or dump their waste, which is threatening people's lives and health. Tierfund will be present throughout the negotiation process pushing for a treaty which ends plastic pollution for good and improves the lives of people living in poverty. Please pray for our team as they attend these negotiations. Our final stop is Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, where the next round of UN Climate Talks COP27 will be kicking off on Sunday the 6th of November. Some of the Tier Fund team will be present at COP campaigning and lobbying to see the world get back on track for 1.5 degrees of warming. To see more countries commit to ending funding for fossil fuels and crucially to see wealthy countries deliver the climate finance they have promised. There will be mass mobilisations happening across the UK on Sunday the 12th of November, including in Belfast. So look out for more information on our social channels. We will meet 
pray together and then grab a yellow placard and march for climate justice. That was The World in Two. Now back to our conversation. Um, you know, thinking, I want to go in internal here in Tier Fund for a little bit. We have got lots of strategic priorities, what our focuses are on mm-hmm. uh, as we respond and, and see a vision, which is an end of poverty across the globe. Um, and we're shifting that a little bit to recognize or to elevate the importance of humanitarian response without getting too jargony. Why have we made that shift? And what's the, what's the purpose of that internally? You know, a humanitarian response has been DNA for Tier Fund for, for since its inception. You know, we 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 were launched out of a response to the Biafra crisis in 1968 in Nigeria. It has been a core part of who we are, um, and I think you know that that core part of who we are has evolved and ebbed and flowed with what we feel is wise. Uh, and uh, ways of using our money and uh, learning from the approaches uh, and the way that we do humanitarian response. Uh, Again, aligning ourselves with the the international aid community. Um, We're very much a Christ-driven organisation. We're something light in the world for me when we do our humanitarian response, that we're we're seen as uh, as professional uh, and um, credible uh, peers, within uh to other aid agencies and that we can come alongside them so you know learning from from there what they're doing good practice from what they're doing is is really really important so we we feel we've always been doing this work but you know i i i kind of anticipated this coming a, a, a few years ago i you know, we knew that climate change was going to escalate and increase the number of uh, emergencies we had. Uh, we we knew that we were going to face increasing conflicts. Sadly, uh, you know, we're, we're entering into a phase within within God's world that uh, there is an increasing uh, number of of conflict, uh, both uh, direct and indirect uh, disputes between countries, communities, uh, ethnic groups, tribes, uh, all sorts of different increase because people are competing more for resources, uh, mm. competing more for um, for access to water or competing more for access to land or competing more for economic rights or competing more for um, for 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 just uh, access to 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 water, um, and because of all of that uh, perspective, um, realistically, I think we had to reorientate ourselves to saying, you know, following COVID, uh, looking at the situations of increasing conflict, and looking and knowing that uh, escalation of climate impacts are going to increase we've got the three c's there uh and on the basis of the three c's we we really felt we really reorientate and and reposition ourselves to become way more intentional uh to equip our country offices better um to give them uh a bit more of a coherent strategic vision um and specifically to really dig deeper on the way that we believe church could and should play a role uh, in local emergencies. And I use church not just as local church. I use church in the context of its of its district, its regional and its national and its international role as well. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we believe very much so that the church has a lot of leverage in all of these places and should be using it wisely in the context of these uh, increasing likelihood of emergencies. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. In I want to zoom in now and I want to ask you about, I guess, resilience. And I think you've mentioned that word already. And yeah. the, I guess the preemptive response within communities to disasters that will increasingly impact them. Um, what is resilience in that context? Why does it matter? And maybe can you give us an example of, of how tier fund builds resilience or um, helps people build resilience in their livelihood or in their community um, against a disaster that's coming down the track? So um, I met a lady once in the Philippines and it was just after Typhoon Haiyan uh, back in 2013. That must have been now. She said, you know, I had a typhoon when I was a child that stole away and took away my land and, and my house. And then not long after I was married, another typhoon came along and robbed us of everything. We lost everything then. And she said, I'm a grandma now. Her daughter had left her granddaughter with her uh, and her elder son. They all had lived in this this one space. And uh, again, it was lost. And I was really broken because that house, it was the same land that she'd lived on all of her life. But that house and all of her assets that she lost, whether that be kind of like her kitchen, whether that be uh, the outdoor loo that they created, whether that be all of her access to clean water on site, their access to electricity, um, you know, that had all been lost, but it did not need to be, right? I knew it didn't need to be. They could have rebuilt the first time around a stronger, more robust house. They could have um, worked better to protect um, the, the, the the valuable possessions they did have. They had a computer for the daughter. Uh, and, you know, when I went in there, uh, all I saw was it had been, you know, washed away on the floor alongside a teddy and remembering the picture in my mind, a, a calculator. Again, all things that uh, give the child the opportunity for, for a future for tomorrow, but there's no way of replacing all of those items. And she didn't have a way of going out and earning anymore because she was older Uh and, you know, I just thought, we this doesn't need to be this way. We could have done so many things with her and her community to strengthen uh, her opportunity to protect her situation. Now, don't get me wrong, the typhoon would have still come, but there was many more things that she could have done to protect herself and to make sure that she didn't have a loss of her income or her son's income and the house itself. And for me, that's that's what it's all about. It's actually recognizing uh, I'm going to be vulnerable to this particular type of crisis. What is it I can do to make sure that this crisis uh, doesn't impact me as much? Now, first and foremost, the fundamental root causes are a lot of people's um, impact of a crisis. Very often, is poverty, injustice, and inequality. Uh, and you know, when you look at when you look at that. Um, we 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 work in advocacy as Tier Fund. We we want to be out there to address these injustice issues, to actually push into climate justice, and to uh, and to look at the root causes of poverty, and to and to address those issues. But but the next layer up is actually saying right, how can they uh, come together as a community 
and actually coordinate themselves to put in uh, community-based mechanisms. So, for example, we we have a process called uh, participatory assessment for disaster risk. And that is where we mobilise a church or a community and we bring them together and we sit with them for a week and we say, right, where are you vulnerable? What, what places are vulnerable to flooding? What kind of crises do you, do you face? Uh, and what capacities do you have? In other words, what skills do you have in the community? What do you have that you can actually bring as well? And there's two things you do. First of all, you have a response plan. So you help them develop their own response plan. So they come together and they say, right, the vulnerable person over there needs someone to come and rescue them when the floods come. And so we're going to develop a little rescue team. And that rescue team knows where the vulnerable people are. Oh, we know we're going to have uh, a loss of a, the bridge is going to often get flooded, so we won't have access to food for a few weeks. We're going to pre-position a team of people who are going to develop a community kitchen. Oh, and we're going to also develop a, a team of people who are going to look out for early warning. So they're going to be the people who listen to the radio, or they're going to be the people who go and look at the measures in the river and say a flood is coming. And that's a protection plan. But then there is more, because we can then work with them to teach them to develop climate smart agriculture, we can work with them to give them new agricultural techniques. We can work with them to do different uh, uh, different storage of, uh, of, of food types. We can give them access to or we can tell them how to access, um, you know, drought resistant seed. Um, you know, it's all there in the Bible, actually, Chris, you know that because Noah kind of like listened to the Lord and actually prepositioned everything. Mm. Joseph listened to the Lord. Uh, and he he prepared, he anticipated, and he and he prepositioned, and those are the kind of activities that are super important to Tier Fund. Mm, that's fascinating insight. Thank you so much for that. Uh, final final question or final theme. You don't need to to think about. Uh, I want to ask about the church. We've mentioned it already, um, and we know that the church is a key partner for Tier Fund and wherever possible, in a local context, a national context. Uh, tier fund works hand in hand with the church, whether in emergency context or thinking about that long term lifting and seeing people lifted out of poverty uh, and the transformation of communities. Um, and I guess for people in Northern Ireland here, we love that. We love that as tier funds distinctive uh, value or quality that that we really honour and um, see the church as God's key vessel for transformation around the world. And we love that. Um, Tell us a bit about why the local church is an ideal partner, uh, maybe specifically in the context of emergencies. Mm. In the summer, I was in Honduras and I went out to see and look at the local church uh, and their response to two hurricanes, which were unheard of to follow the same trajectory within a two week time frame. Uh, and the comp- we talk about compounding crises, but um, and that was all during COVID. So I knew that there couldn't be any international response during that time. It was very difficult to get flights. It was very difficult to get movement. It really was at the peak of when most countries were in the middle of lockdown. And so I wanted to go out and uh, coming back to my role as learning, and I wanted to bit, dig a bit deeper about what had been going on well in uh, in the church in Honduras to actually say 
how had the church responded when there was no one to walk alongside them? And there was a few things, some preparedness work. We have a resource called uh, that you can find on Tear Fund Learn. Uh, we we fondly call it Pastors in Disasters. And we weren't allowed to title it that. But in, in it's guidelines for church leaders in disasters. And that resource we'd rolled out uh, a lot in, in Central America for the previous five years. And, and they'd use that as a platform to build up the local church. So I was quite curious to look at the impact of that. But also we, we'd we been doing a form of church and community mobilization as well, uh, which is, as your listeners will, will well know, is, is a core DNA again of what Tier Fund does. But we, we've, we've been doing it in such a way that I think we've been doing it a little bit in isolation of, of the risk conversation. And coming back to our new strategic vision, we now believe we've got such a great basis and a foundation of our church and community mobilization work. We now need to say, well, what is it that church and community mobilization can do in emergencies? And so I went to see a community uh, in San Pedro Sula um, in, in, in Honduras, and they had facilitated this cash-based programming approach. It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. I mean, the the floods were, uh, I'm, I'm not tall, I'm not tall, just for listeners. I'm, uh, I'm one and a half meters, but it was a good four meters. You know, the second floor of the school had been completely flooded out, let alone the first floor of the school. And um, when they saw the floodwaters rising, they supported immediately people to, to relocate them, especially if they're most vulnerable. But they use their church uh, volunteers. So they use the young people to go out and do assessments of where the, the need was greatest. And another tier fund partner came alongside the church to help them with the uh, logistics and the operationality of actually getting uh, cash to them. And they use what we call, a, a, well, they use mobile banking effectively. Um, to, again, we for security reasons, we don't necessarily want to be working around and handing out cash left, right and centre. We want to be able to use technology to be able to use things most up to date. And um, yeah, it was a great story of that the pastor had been coordinating that leadership, how he mobilised his young people, how he knew where the most vulnerable people were, and his leadership and his insight uh, and his passion for his community uh, meant that, you know, their recovery was really quite remarkable and fast without any external support. You know, and that for me was a real success story. And that's for me why I think we need to carve out more an understanding of what is the role of church during times of crisis. Different churches will have different strengths. Different churches will have different roles. So we don't want to do a one size fits all approach. We also recognize the church has a primary mission and we don't want to make them mini NGOs. We don't want to make them mini aid organizations. So where is it that our relationship comes alongside them. And that is part of our next few years worth of strategic thinking and how we're going to go deeper uh, on our work and with churches and emergencies. Fascinating. That's really, really interesting. And even just that final, that balance between the church's primary mission and our mission. And I guess where those two things sync together is the is maybe the sweet spot or the place that requires the most thought. That's really interesting. Um, you know, the final question uh, your role allows you to see maybe the worst of of what happens around the world, and I expect at times it's heavy, and it burdens you, and your heart breaks, as you've said. Give us just again a sort of one or two sentences. The hope. Where where do you see hope 
uh, where do you allow yourself to to see God at work in that so that you don't struggle to turn your computer on every morning because of the weight of some of these challenges? Um, mm-hmm. where, where's the encouragement for the hope of the kingdom for us? You know, that's so, so insightful. Um, well-being for, for us and our team is um, particularly acute. I think as our team, we often see the start of these emergencies, we hear about the losses, we hear about the trauma and the heartache, we hear about, you know, the increase in domestic violence that might occur as a result of a crisis, we hear about the children who may literally be starving. And it is, I I won't deny, it is a tough, tough gig. Um, But you know what, for all of the team and the country directors and the staff uh, that we work with, um, I genuinely, for my peers and other aid agencies, I, I don't know how they do this, mm. really, um, because my hope is literally that I, I I worship a God who is king and lord of, of creation. And, and I am I am told I must trust at times. And that's that's hard because I want to see hope. Um, but I must trust in what I've been kind of like reflecting on in my own kind of like quiet times and and my own devotions with God recently um, is whole concepts of time and the father's perspective of time and his use of timing is so unaligned with my perspective of a contemporary society which seeks us to say the urgent, the now, we're going to move now, we're going to change it now such an instantaneous society from Instagram. I mean, the, the, the hint is in the, in the word. You know, we, we're, we're obsessed with the instant nature of life. And I must believe that my God has a, has a greater plan. I do believe that my God has a greater plan. And um, about a week ago, actually, a colleague emailed me saying, we put out some prayers for the humanitarian workers on One Voice. And, um, you know, this is what's come back. And um, it was 31 pages in a, in a Word document of people who've been praying for us. And I was like, oh, my goodness. She said, I really feel you need to, to obviously tell others. So I immediately then cascaded it out. And I, I picked out, you know, these people are busy people that I'm cascading this to. And I went through and I read all of those 31 pages and I pulled out three prayers that really, really struck a chord with me. And I just put them in into the overarching email and I sent it out. And my my colleague Rama from, from South Sudan emailed back, you know, within a matter of hours and say, you know, this timing works so beautifully, you know. He emailed at 11 o'clock at night and he said, you know, we're up at night because we're worried about our staff. We're up at night because we're worried about how we're going to make, you know, ends meet and our budget to be able to serve all the people that we have aspirations to serve. He said, you know, it's so comforting to know that others are praying for us. So, you know, a huge vote of thanks to people who come alongside us. It's, it's a massive, massive, it means so much to us. Wonderful. And a real encouragement for our listeners that, Obviously, we we value uh, gifts and, and the donations, for example, to the Pakistan Appeal have been really uh, important in our response to that. But actually, the, the thing that you've pulled out in only has been the prayers of people and yeah. the encouragement that that brings. And so um, that whole life response, as we're called as Christians, to yes, to respond with generosity, but also to respond with our with our prayers and Absolutely. our actions. And hopefully this, this podcast has fueled prayers. And so please pass on. To your to some of your teams and your colleagues, the prayers of of Northern Irish Tier Fund supporters, um, and and uh, and we we trust that they'll 
appreciate being encouraged by that. Anyway, thank, thank you for your time. Uh, you have a busy job and I really, really appreciate it and bless you for what's uh, coming down the track for you. Thank you very much. Well, listeners, I hope that you have found that an encouragement and a blessing. Um, certainly for me, I loved hearing you know, they talk about, I guess, two threads. One, that, that theological or spiritual or church right at the center. I find that a real encouragement. Um, and also, even for me, working within Tear Fund, the, the scope and the scale of behind the scenes operations uh, when, a, when a response uh, is needed to emergency, I find that really interesting. And hopefully, again, it's fueled your prayers. Uh, please continue to pray for Pakistan uh, and East Africa and other places that might be on your heart. Uh, don't forget to give us a follow, a share, a like on whatever sort of social media you're on. Uh, and we'll see you again next month. Bless you.